Welcome back to the Darren Batchelder's Multifamily Real Estate Investing Show. Today we have an extraordinary guest with us, Joseph Bermonte, co-founder and CEO at Triarch Real Estate Partners. Joseph's journey in the multifamily industry began by chance, but quickly turned into a full-fledged passion. So tune in as we unravel his story, strategies, and multifamily investment insights. But before we get started, if you're a high net worth individual looking to preserve your capital and build your wealth responsibly by passively investing in multifamily real estate, and you'd like my help, visit darrenbatchelder.com forward slash investor call and schedule a discovery call today. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing. Be introduced to the players that are getting it done and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Joseph Bramante. Joseph, appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely, man. Looking forward to it. It's, uh, it's been a while since I've done a podcast, but uh, you know, happy to be on this one. We're going to have a lot of fun and hopefully uh, listeners are going to learn more about what you're up to and how they can do the same thing. So, you know, before we get started, just a little background on how we know each other. This is the first time that Joseph and myself are talking. You know, he's been in the space for a long time and was interested in, in getting to know him better and what he's been up to. So with that, um, can you share with the listeners how many properties and how many units you're invested in? Yes, yeah, so right now we're at just under 1,700 doors, uh, and it's uh, 14 properties, and we've got another two properties, about 600 units under development. Awesome. Just to start out, maybe share a little bit on, on your background. I know that you started work at a, after school with ExxonMobil. Kind of what was your your degree in, uh, what were you doing for ExxonMobil and kind of how'd you get into this, this world of multifamily? Yeah, so um, come from an engineering family. Uh, stepdad was a electrical engineer. Um, I didn't really take to the black arts. It was, I like to be able to see things. So I went civil engineering, um, went to school in Louisiana Tech University, uh, go Bulldogs and um, ended up going I had some internships planned out for me, working the traditional uh, consulting route. I worked in New Orleans, I'm from New Orleans, but I worked for a company in New Orleans uh, called WS Nelson for a few summers and got to do, you know, got to see what that traditional engineering route was like. There was a lot of uh, AutoCAD and Excel and I, I kind of got bored of it after the first summer, you know, you start designing the same things over and over again. You start to, uh, I remember I was designing some I-beams for this gold mine in Freeport, Indonesia. And uh, I remember wanting to go there to see it installed. I was just an analyst and I, or, you know, uh, we call it an engineering intern, EIN. And I designed this I-beam and I get a photo of it installed like three months later or two months later. And I was like, well, that kind of sucks. So, uh, so then when Exxon, you know, right before I graduated, Exxon came to the career day 
that was them and Chevron and I think Shell and got opportunity uh, from, from two of them uh, and kind of went with the higher offer. It wasn't really a complicated decision. I just, <laughs> who gave me the most money? And, They're going to pay me more. Yeah. So uh, I went with Exxon. They moved me to Houston. Um, I was a little taken by them, if you will, for lack of a better word, because the first time I ever flew an airplane was to the interview in Houston, where they flew me in from uh, Ruston, Louisiana to Houston. And I was like, oh, wow. And I was on this little tiny little turboprop. But in my mind, I was like, wow, I'm riding a jet plane. Like, you know, it was it was um, it was interesting. And got that's my first experience at Houston and all googly eyed and all that. And went to the interview and nailed it. And uh, so then I was like, sure. And, and it didn't help that. You know, so I graduated in November. I had negative $150 to my name. Account was in red. I was not in a good spot. I'd paid for college myself. Uh, had some scholarships, but then worked. And uh, so anyway, I really needed the job. And uh, I went to work right away. Worked through Christmas holiday. Didn't take any time off. Um, and then a few months later, they it's like nine months uh, into my job at Exxon or into my job at Houston, they moved me overseas. And that's when I really got to experience uh, the expat life, uh, experience different cultures. Um, I, I realized that America wasn't the center of the world after all. Uh, it's not. It's not. I, I didn't know that. Um, you wouldn't know, but it's a shocker, right? Um, yeah, you go overseas. I was in Australia for a year and had like no clue what was going on back home because like all the news was about Australia. You know, they could give a crap what we're doing in the U.S. Uh, usually the stuff about the U.S., they were usually making fun of us. So it, it wasn't uh, a good thing. And then uh, after a year in Australia, I was in Brisbane. Then I moved. Uh, I was working on this uh, LNG facility. It was a $22 billion project that we were building out in Papua New Guinea. So after the first year, uh, we were the first year we we're going through the funding process where we had to Basically, think of it as due diligence for an acquisition. So we're going through all the due diligence of the project, getting all of our, our you know, dotting all of our I's, crossing all of our T's, getting all the underwriting together, presenting that to the vice presidents uh, like you would present to a lender or equity group. And then we finally got approval and got the funding to then mobilize and go in country. So I was part of the funding team. And then I also mobilized and went in country for two years uh, and I saw the project go from a green field, literally just a giant field, uh, to a two-train LNG facility, four-story, you know, steel mainframe, just behemoth. Uh, it was it was awesome. So I did that for two and a half years, made more money than any 23-year-old should make and wasn't able to spend any of it. I mean, I did a pretty good job of spending it. Uh, I was able to manage to save up some of it. And uh, I remember at that time, my uh, my managers were a rotator. So they would work for four weeks. So I'd go home for four weeks. I was full time. So I, I just never left. So you stayed there, but you had different managers that were coming in and, uh, and leaving. No, yes and no. So like I had like the same managers, but just one would come and go every four weeks. And so we had a certain things to get done while he was gone and somebody else was in charge. He had a backup manager. So two of them alternated. They would brief each other on their rotations and get each other up to speed. 
But this one particular manager, every time he would come back from rotation, this is 2010, he had a new crappy little rental house that he had bought. And I mean, these things were just terrible. Like I, I was like, I would never live there. Like, why are you buying this garbage? And, but he was like, well, I'm making 600 bucks a month in rent or, and I, my note was really cheap because back then interest rates were zero basically. So he was, and he was like, yeah, I got like 20 or 30 of these things. And so that was when I started kind of doing the math. And, and that was, you know, up until that point, I'd been a career man. You know, I was like, I'm going to do Exxon for the rest of my life. I'm going to retire and have the pension and the 401k. Actually, they didn't have pension. Pensions were already gone at that point. But I was going to have all the stock. And, you know, I was doubling and matching my stock and all, you know, the full uh, rigmarole they give you, you know, when you first start. Climb the corporate ladder. You're basically going to give up. 30 years of your life to, to work for, for Exxon. Yeah. I mean, at the time you don't know any better. It seems like a good deal because you're, yeah. you're drinking the Kool-Aid, right? You're like, Hey, you're looking and up. That's what we've been trained the whole time, you know? Right. I mean, even at, you know, school and then college, that's what you're getting trained for. I was ready for this, man. I was, so I was, you know, I was, I was drinking that Kool-Aid two at a time and I was down for it. Um, and I was doing the little math. I was like, okay, if I save up this much money and I keep, I keep matching my 401k when I retire, I'm going to have like $3 million. You know, I was like, wow, I was, I was impressed. Um, and, um, but anyway, through, through this experience, uh, that's when I remember we were, we would do these little trips, weekend trips to the really, to the various islands of Papua New Guinea. There's some gorgeous islands, by the way, over there. Uh, it's unfortunate that it's so remote. I remember one time I was on this little island all by myself. The, the boat just dropped us off. We were over in Tufi and like people just never visit there. Like people, tourists don't really get there because it takes, you know, you got to go into Port Moresby, then the Tufi, then, I mean, it's a, it's a hassle. But uh, anyway, it was on that trip that one of the other managers was like, you know, uh, one day you'll realize that it's just a job. Right now you think it's a career. And so that was like, when you realize it's just a, an end to a means, you know, you're just there to collect a paycheck and, and you really need to start looking out for yourself. And then I saw what the other manager was doing and he was really taking care of himself and that like, he was, he was already set. Like he had enough rental revenue coming in. So then I started reading books on real estate and uh, you know, we didn't really have internet. We had internet it was super slow. Podcasts weren't really that big. So it was all Kindle and books. So downloaded some books on multifamily or really on single family. The first book that was just like about real estate investing. And it said basically that single family is great, but if you have the money, go into multifamily because multifamily is really where you can grow your wealth. Uh, then I read another book called uh, multifamily millions by, I forget the author's name, David Lindahl. Lindahl. And that was like, it was just like, it reminded me of like, it reminded me of an old engineering book. Uh, actually, like one of my, uh, like my concrete analysis books, because it's just like a book of formulas. And I was like, oh, math, I love it. More formulas. And so you're and it's showing you like mathematically how you can make all this money and how it all works. And that really intrigued me because single family, you're still really kind of dependent on the market to, for the value of the house to go up. You don't control it that much. But multifamily, I, you know, I was like, oh, I, I kind of control the value. So with just a couple of books under my under my belt, I went and I bought my first apartment complex while living in Papua New Guinea. 
So uh, come on, you were still living over there when you did when you did it. Yeah, I found a broker. So I was, you know, I was working two jobs. I'd work my normal, you know, probably eight to to six, eight to seven uh, at Exxon, and then because I was thirteen hours ahead, by the time my workday was ending at overseas, it was just starting here in Houston. So then I can continue working until midnight, two a.m. And it was, you know, around noon to two in the afternoon here. So I would work the mornings. Uh, and what I did was I first run a loop net like everybody does. And I think, I'm not sure if they do that now anymore, but back then I was kind of where I got my start. I uh, went to loop net, um, found some properties, and then more importantly, found the brokers there. And then through my connections with the brokers, they started showing me deals. And I found this really great deal. Uh, at, it's at I-10 and Silver in Houston, if you know the locations, that really primo spot. It was a t- small 26-unit little apartment complex. Um, and I bought it for like 25000 per unit, which is crazy. Holy like, cow. And, you know, now we're doing right. rehabs bigger than that on a regular. Um, but yeah, so I bought it for dirt cheap. I mean, it wasn't dirt cheap back then. It was still, it felt very expensive back then. And um, so after six months, you know, found this property, closed on it, and then kind of went through the ringer during the following six months. So what do you mean by the ringer? Well, the week after we closed on the property, 15% moved out. So it was two properties are next to each other and the same owner owned both of them. Uh, So he sold me one, he kept the other. Uh, because he was demolishing the other one. But in the meantime, as you know, when you buy a property, you got to give notice. Hey, guys, I'm the new owner. And once you give notice, once we gave notice, a lot of people got scared or spooked and they just moved next door. So our vacancy went up, you know, 15%. And we weren't too worried because at the time we're like, all right, no problem. We're renovating those units anyway. So, you know, thank you. Um, and then the next, um, blow was i think it was three months into it into the deal we found out that the i don't know it's like maybe two months in we found out the insurance we had was was not real we had bought insurance from a broker it was not real yeah we paid like 15 grand for this insurance policy and then a month or two into owning it we get an email from the broker they're telling us hey we just found out that this insurance company that we sold you is, is fraudulent they're not a real company we're working on recouping the funds blah 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 so then our attorneys got involved we had to make them sign a letter just saying like you know if anything happens to this property you're paying for it because this wasn't our mistake um and um so that was not good Meanwhile, we are but the, the lender is wanting to make sure that there's proper insurance on it as well. Correct. Right? Our lender, um, this is just how wild it was back then. I mean, this, the market was very um, in, immature. So our lender was a, a lender called Bank of Internet USA. It was this. They're a California bank. I know. I, I, I'd never heard right? of them. I've, yeah, I've never heard of them Internet since bank. that deal. Yep. I don't know if they did multifamily because they didn't require a lot of stuff from us that most lenders require these days. And um, but anyway, we we got through it. We notified them. We told them what was going on, and that's and that was part of the reason why we had to get that letter signed to make sure that the lender and us were covered should anything happen. Um, mm-hmm. And then I want to say around month four, 
is when we, so we're, we're renovating the property and our, we made a mistake of letting our, this one property manager, we hired the terrible property manager. He was a guy who did single family and this was his first multifamily deal. And, you know, he's trying to do everything by the book. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but he was getting permits for stuff that you didn't need to get permits for. Uh, and anyway, we're, we're, I think we're installing central AC on this thing and he's going out, he's getting engineering reports and all this stuff. And uh, so we're submitting this permit for the solid AC because back then it was a lot of units had just window units. Uh, this one was actually a really funny one because it was a window unit that was blowing into a fur down and the fur down was connected to the rest of the unit. So the, it was that redneck AC system, which, you know, I thought was pretty funny. Um, I've only seen that one other time, but anyway, we're applying for our permit to install AC. And, um, one of the questions is cool is to, uh, submit your environmental report. And I was like, what's that? And they're like, you're phase one environmental. You should have done one. You bought the property. And I was like, no, we didn't do one. I'll go ahead and do it now. So we got one done. Uh, and then that's kind of when, you know, the, the, the stuff hit the fan, so to speak. Uh, it came back hot for asbestos and oh, no. working in the, uh, in the oil and gas industry, you know, we're trained all too well on, on, on what that is. And so we had, to, and we, at this time, we're already renovating four units. So we had guys covered in dust and they had sheetrock down in units. It was, and we're just like, we're sent, we sent out a letter immediately, stop work, go home, we're out of money. You know, we're just like, sorry guys, we ran out of funds, um, which was, which was, I mean, we were actually low on funds at that point because I didn't know about bridge loans. The book didn't tell me to get a bridge loan. It just said, you spend money on this rehab. I had no idea what a bridge loan was. And so we were just self-funding the rehab with our own cash. Um, and uh, so anyway, we, we stand there by home and we're kind of like trying to figure out what we're going to do now. And at that time I wasn't fully panicking, you know, like we were like, this sucks. This is a bad situation, but I was still optimistic that we we're going to figure it out. Um, and then the, the final kind of nail in the coffin came whenever I got let go from Exxon. So, you know, at, at this point I've got a negative cash flowing property, but I'm making so much money overseas for Exxon. It's not, I'm not really noticing it. Uh, and so it was actually a good thing. You know, we were self-funding the property, but we were, didn't really matter to us. As soon as I lost that income stream, it, it started to matter real quick. Um, right. and I'm, I'm thankful for, for that because I, that's when I really You're thankful for, what? for getting let go because that's when we really right. focused on the property. Um, yeah. had that not happened. It's funny how a, a trial or a tough time could end up. Yeah. You know, so the next day, it doesn't feel like it at the time. Absolutely not. It was, um, oh man, so many emotions go through you. Like when you get let go, like I was, I was angry. I had this, oh, oh, embarrassed, super embarrassed. Never told my parents for like two years, told them I quit. I was going to do real estate full time. And they were, my mom was upset with me forever. And she was like, just go, go tell Oxon you're sorry. You want your job back. <laughs> I was like, oh, mom, I don't, I don't think I can. Um, but anyway, so the very next day, so I got, I let go on a Wednesday. I spend 10 grand to join this real estate group on a Thursday. And I was like, Hey guys, this is my situation. I've got this property. It's negative cash flowing. I don't know what to do. I don't have any, I'm, I'm unemployed. Uh, help me. 
And their advice from the top down, from the CEO all the way down, was like, sell the property, take a loss. And I mean, this was the first big money I ever made in my life. I mean, that I had saved up that 100K in my account. It had been there for a few weeks. And then I wired it out to the closing table. And I remember that day, I mean, that was a sickening stomach that I, I've never felt since. But because there were so many unknowns and you're just like, you know, let's, let's do this. Uh, but to see all that money disappear from your account, you go back down to, uh, you know, five digits instead of six. That's uh, not a good feeling. So did you sell the property? Well, no. So we did the opposite. Uh, you know, it's, it's like poker. I'm, I was already in this deal. The river card came uh, or the river card was, was coming and I, I didn't really have a winning hand at the time. If I sold the property, I would have lost most of my investment. I would have gotten maybe half back. Um, but I had an opportunity to do a, to go the other end and just go all in and do this massive renovation. And so we did some more data. And at that point I was, I mean, I was getting better at multifamily exponentially. I was just, I was doing courses at CCAM at this time. I was unemployed. So I had all the time in the world. I was only doing this. I was just, you know, eat, sleep and drink. Did, did you have partners or were you, were you on your own on this? It was me and one other partner. Uh, he luckily still had his job at Exxon. We were two Exxon guys. He was a rotator. Um, he was actually the only person that saw the property before we closed on it. I never saw it until three months after we closed on it in person. I saw photos, right. um, which the closing, by the way, was really cool. Like uh, closing a property international, I had to go to the U.S. Embassy of Papua New Guinea to get my documents notarized to send huh. back to the closing table. So that was a that was a trip. Um, but anyway, so we're in this deal. Uh, we go all in. My my partner. Uh, my, my manager company at the time, the new one we hired, who had lots of experience, they had 30 years experience uh, each. They said, look, you're in a great location. There's a lot of properties nearby. There are a lot of houses that are renovating for much more. You've actually got a really pretty good shot of doing a big renovation uh, and basically doubling your rents. And at that point, I mean, if I, if I cash out my 401k and dump that into the deal, what difference does it make? I mean, I've already got so much, the, the pot's already gotten so large. I might as well just throw this a little bit extra money into it to see what's going to happen. Worst case scenario, I'm still going back to work to get a job. Best case scenario, this thing works out magnificently and, and I continue on doing multifamily. You can kind of guess what happened. So <laughs> we... Uh, We're here today talking, so it must have gone well. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we, we did the renovation. We first vacated the property. We went in, we did an asbestos abatement. Then we did the renovation. We spent 30,000 per door renovating the property that I bought for 25,000 a door. 30K a door, in, in what year was that? This was 2013. Wow. Yeah. That was, that was, that was a big, big money back then. Yeah. Um, we did new roofs, all new interiors, new plumbing, um, added washer and dryers, electrical. It was, that was a lot of work. Um, and we doubled the rents over a nine month period, leased it back up. And I remember that being, uh, you know, Elon Musk has this quote that says, uh, you know, I think entrepreneurship is like chewing glass and staring into the abyss. 
And that was me. I'm just sitting there like every month as we're doing more draws to the renovation, we're getting more and more in debt. And we don't have any leases because we're basically doing a development. So we haven't, we haven't finished a rehab to start leasing yet. And then when we do start leasing, it, they don't just come right away. Uh, there was actually like a month or two where nobody came. It was, it was the Christmas time, uh, New Year period. And then February, we got a couple. Then March, we got a couple more. And then April and May, they all came. And so we leased the property up and uh, it all worked out. We refinanced, I think in May or June. And we got a refinance check for 207% of our total, orig- or our total investment into the deal. And wow. that was, you know, basically up until that point, we had been flying by instruments. Like didn't really know, had no real success at it, but the books said that it would work. The mentor said it would work or my man, my partner said it would work. And we had seen other people because we had been at this real estate group now. And so we knew other people were doing similar stuff, not to this magnitude. I mean, we were the new guy in the group and we were doing the biggest renovation. Everybody thought we were crazy. Right. And uh, it worked. We refinanced into a Fannie Freddie loan and uh, got great terms on it. And that was... That's when I told my parents that what really happened at Exxon. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you, man. You know what? I mean, you took a risk. Um, you know, whether you start your own business or you get into real estate or you do, you know, when you when you hit a challenge, you know, you kind of have that choice. Like, do you fold them or do you, you know, go all in? And, and you went all in and, and it worked out for you. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was... Um, I mean, it's a fun story to tell, right? But then you, it's not really repeatable, right? Like that would never happen today. Like you would, like the economics just aren't the same. It's, uh, it was something that happened at that period of time. And so it's, it's a fun story to no, tell, but, but it's not learning repeatable. Lessons from it. You know, there's definitely learning lessons. Like, look, there's a lot of people, you know, maybe not overseas, but there's a lot of people that are in markets that maybe are not the, you know, what, in multifamily, you talk about population growth and income growth. And like, so I want to buy, but I don't live in one of those states, you know? Um, so I live in Dallas, which is one of those states, but like there's other people that are living in other parts of the country. And like, I don't want to buy here, but I don't know how to buy in a different state. And like you bought from overseas, you know? So that's a lesson right there. Um, two, doubling rents, you know, like if, if you're in single family, like you said, you just have to wait for the market to go up and your neighbor's house to sell and comps to go up. You know, it doesn't matter how much you're renting it for. Uh, but in multifamily, if you can figure out a way to get real life people that are willing to pay double the rent, then your valuation is going to skyrocket, which it did, you know, and that's where the forced depreciation comes. Yeah. But there's also, you know, some unique things about the deal is that people forget that we've, it was a vacant property. It's really hard to double rents if you, while the existing profile is still there. So there are certain things that lend themselves to situations where you have a vacant property and you can retenant the whole thing and you can you know, boost it. Otherwise it's, it's really hard to do that type of lift without doing uh, a, a lease down. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love that. So I also read um, when I was on your website that 
you had a you were call you were originally had a game plan of of doing what your buddy you know was doing and buying these rentals and then you started calling around and then a lender gave you some perspective yeah so i was you know my my manager i think he had a couple dozen houses and uh I was going to partner with this other colleague at Exxon because he had five houses. Uh, his family had been doing this for a while and they were buying a house and they were paying it off and we were having all those back and forth conversations. Should you pay off the house, you know, buy five and use the income from these five to pay off the first one and then it snowballs and you got five houses fully paid off or you, anyway. So we're running all those scenarios and and that's when we came up with that this, you know, this beautiful spreadsheet done of like, all right, over a two year period, we're going to pool our resources. We're going to buy 80 houses. That's a uh, 80 houses over two 80 years. 80 houses over two years. That's a lot of closings. It was a lot of closings. And all I needed was a loan for like $3 million. So I was going to all these banks and I was sending this spreadsheet that I put together. Uh, and I was like, hey guys, I really want to borrow $3 million. You know, I didn't know what the hell I was asking for. Uh, and most of them just like laughed at me or told me no. Or, and then I would call them from Papua New Guinea from a weird country code. And they would answer thinking I'm like some scam. Uh, but no, finally, one of them, uh, BMC Capital, uh, I think the gentleman's name was Joseph there. He's not there anymore. But anyway, he was like, look, dummy, go buy an 80 unit apartment complex. Don't buy 80 houses. It's much easier. Uh, and that's when the light bulb really went off. Cause I was like me, like I can, I can buy an apartment complex. Like the book said I could do it, but that's, and I think, I think that might've happened first is that he had told me to go buy it. And then I really dove into the multifamily space of it, looked into it much more, but that was, that's, that's uh, interesting because not, you know, he gave you that advice. Um, I had a, another syndicator that came on. And he was in the single family. He had a bunch of single family rentals. And then he was going to buy his first multifamily. And it was, it was a while ago. And it was maybe 20% occupied. It was a rundown, uh, distressed deal. And he went to get a loan for that. And the lenders said, well, look, I'm not going to lend on that. But why don't you, you know, I'll give you a loan on the other properties and you, you know, you, you pretty much have them paid off and then just buy the multifamily cash. So, you know, that's like a lesson of learning where, where can you find the financing? Where can you find the capital? Um, I had a different syndicator that said it, she was refinancing her house. It was harder to refinance her house than to get financing on a 200 or 300 unit property. Hmm. Yeah, it's, and, it's incredible. We do some some house flipping on the side. You know, that's my that's how we get our play money. And I find it interesting going to these closings. And I'm like, just like signing all kinds of crap. And you're like, what is this? Like, this is ridiculous. I signed less paperwork to go buy a, you know, yeah, exactly to your point, a 200 unit property than I do to buy this, you know, $150,000, $200,000 house. Like, what's going on? Right. Because, you know, the lenders on the multifamily, they are, they're really underwriting the cash flow for the property. They're saying, look, this, this property is generating this cash flow and that cash flow can pay my mortgage. Where, you know, as a, as a 
if you're buying a single family house to, to occupy, or if you're buying for investment, they're looking at you. They're looking at how much income you have, what kind of assets you have, and they're all over you versus looking at the cash flow on the property. And I believe also single family, those recourse loans are non-recourse. Recourse, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. they do have to look at you a lot more you know, strongly. Right. Absolutely. So that, that's very interesting. Um, in terms of, you know, learning lessons, that first one obviously is a, is a huge learning lesson. But since then, you've scaled dramatically. You've been, that was back in what, 2008, you said, I think? Yeah, I, I bought the first one in 2011 and got into it in 2013. And I was exiting in 2014. And okay, that's so another now point. We're 10 years later, you know, um, how'd you scale? Yeah. So really slowly, to be honest, just one property a year is what I was buying at. Uh, we started doing two properties a year, a couple of years ago. And, you know, I just want to point out like during that story, like I was, I was stuck on that deal for three years. And so I wasn't doing any other deals during like, the best time to be buying deals, I was, I'd missed the window. I mean, I could have bought so many more properties. I was already at this real estate group. I had access to lots of capital, but I had to clean my, I had to fix my house, you know, so to speak. And, uh, and so less learned there is, you know, if you're going to get started in the industry, it's okay to do a base hit, just get in, do a nice, easy deal. Don't try to get a home run which I wasn't trying to get a home run at the time. I thought I was going to do a 3000 per door renovation and just kind of own it. And I don't know how I, my underwriting was all crap back then. I mean, everybody's underwriting is crap when they just start out, but, um, that's a good point though, in terms of like, you know, focus when you're focusing on your first deal, like some people in today's market, right? I mean, transactions are down 80%. Yeah. And multifamily. And some people are like, Oh, Maybe now is not the time to get in. Now's the but best time to be you, getting in. You have a you know a lot less competition, so there's less deals getting done. But the interest rates are already have already gone up, so you're using you know today's interest rates in your underwriting. Yeah. Plus, there's not as much competition, and the ones that have experience, some of them are saddled with. They might have ten deals, but maybe two of them they 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 have trouble with. So. Like, just like you were on your first property, you had to be, you know, focused on that one. There's some syndicators that are focused on their one or two troubled deals. I think there's more than, there's a lot of people that are all just focused on their own portfolios at the moment. A lot right. of people are on the sidelines and they're just focused on, you know, their own, uh, their own house, making sure that things keep going in, in order. Uh, and so I think it's a great opportunity, especially for guys starting out or maybe with just like one or two properties, they can get in under the radar. They can buy deals at a great basis. Um, I mean, it's not going to get, nobody really sees it getting worse, not much worse than it is now. And if anything, we're, we're about to, to round the, the corner here and things are going to start going the other direction. So if you can find a way to make deals work in this market, one, it'll be a good testing ground for you because it, it'll be, this is the toughest market to get deals done in. If you can find a way to get a deal done in this market, it'd be a great experience for you. You'll learn a lot. Um, it'll be a nice little notch to put on your belt for a future, you know, for your future resume. But also it's, 
you know, you're just gonna be in it for a great basis and you could probably can steal some deals. You know, you could probably get some that you normally wouldn't get access to because the other buyers would be actively bidding them up. But now there are no other buyers. Yeah, so I mean, just even talking to brokers, right? Brokers, if you were the new guy, they already have their, their guys that they know who they're gonna, you know, can close. So they weren't spending the time with the new guys. You know, there were 20 offers and then best and final and then second best and final. So now all of a sudden those brokers have the time to talk to you and, and help you. And, you know, it's, so that's a huge advantage where you didn't have that a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. Um, but also so, don't, uh, I mean, another, but also don't expect people just like to give you the property. I mean, we, no, we absolutely, absolutely not. We floated the idea of selling some of ours right now that we're like, we got to refinance or just offload it. And some like the off market offers we got, we're just like, like, come on guys, like not even close. Like it's just <laughs> silly. So if they would have been like real offers, we would have entertained it. But that's the other thing. I think there are some people so out just like trying to be just trying to steal a deal. There's, yeah, there's always going to, it's always going to happen. You know, you're going to have really, really super low ball offers. Um, you know, I was in the loan trading space um, in between the you know, great recession. You had private equity firms that were bidding, you know, 20, 34 cents on the dollar on performing loans, you know, and these banks are like, I, you know, I'm not going to take a 70% hit, you know, on, on a loan that's paying me every month. Um, and then, you know, it took time to, to kind of get to a middle ground. But talk, talk to um, both passive investors and then also active investors in today's market. You know, we have higher interest rates. We've got inflation. It deal, you know, volume is way down. You know, if you want to be a first-time passive investor, I think that more people have a, an aversion to losing money than they do on getting in at like a, a great time and, and making money. Um, so talk about how this could be, we don't, I mean, nobody knows. I mean, it could go down further or, or it could just shoot back. Um, but how this could be a good opportunity for both a passive investor and active investor. Yeah, I mean, we've got a new election cycle is here. We've got a new president coming in. Generally, when we have new presidents coming in, they tend to shake things up. Um, and so depending on how things fall, I mean, I, I feel like regardless of which way it goes, there's going to be, uh, I'm, I'm optimistic that post January, you're going to see a big difference, uh, and how the, you know, the economy itself is running. And I think you'll see things definitely improve. I think, you know, would either president is going to probably campaign on getting rates down. I mean, it's just like the no brainer. They have to campaign on that. And so I think it's, it's going to be one of the big pushes that they make in Texas. We've got legislation right now for getting our taxes reformed, property taxes, which are a big issue. Uh, they're just really getting through the roof. Um, you're in Dallas. I know you're feeling this as well. It's just really, absolutely. it's one of those non-controllable, uncontrollable expenses. I mean, you can contest them, but you know, we got tax values on some properties that are nowhere that are way above what it's actually worth just because their tax values are, you know, they take your income and then they put their own expense numbers in to get the value instead of your actual expense numbers. 
So that's uh, fortunately they can be pretty far off on some deals. But anyway, back to the original question. I think absolutely get in. Great time to buy. I, I don't see a downside at the moment. I mean, if I don't see a, a long-term downside, I mean, I think any downside is going to be the next six months. But even then, if you decide to get in now, more, more than likely, you're not closing for three to six months anyway. So you'll go past this turbulent period, especially depending on when this airs. Uh, right now it's what, June. So I think if you can get under contract for something and be closing towards the end of the year or first part of next year, I think you'll be in a good spot. Yeah, that's I, I tell us people the same thing. I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen in three months, six months. I mean, there's all you read all this news, you know, that this recession is coming, and then you got other people saying that it's not, and you don't know what to believe. Um, so I don't know the short term. I don't have a crystal ball three months, six months. But man, I see people. I'm in Dallas, and I'm sure you see the same thing in Houston. There are so many new people moving here that. There's new developments. There's all kinds of new stuff that three years from now, four years from now, five years from now, I don't see valuations being lower, you know, because you just have so many new people moving into the market. So you've got new jobs, new population growth, and all that is what drives, you know, multifamily values. Yeah. Values are, I don't see them really going down much, if any. Uh, they're mostly just going to plateau right now. Well, talk about that values, values in today's market. So we talked about the 80% transaction decline in multifamily and then you, the media, you know, makes it all scary. Right. Um, but what I'm hearing is the people that are transacting maybe 20% off of the highs from last year is where they're, where they're actually buying the deals. What, what are you seeing? Are you seeing that? that kind of same price point or, you know, bigger discount or, you know, what's your take? You know, we're one of those groups that been, has been sitting on the sideline. So I don't have a, a good barometer. We've just been kind of waiting, kind of checking, just kind of checking the temperature, so to speak, to when we do want to jump in. Uh, I think just now we're starting to look at properties that we'd be interested in acquiring. Um, so I don't have a, a great data point for you other than we've seen a lot of say, other than we've seen cap rates you know like stuff that we're looking at buying now is six six and a half percent cap rate on you know some stuff that is a bit rougher you know uh on good quality stuff you're still seeing it like five and a half six percent cap rate so it really just depends you know, to get our attention, the, you know, the whole motivated seller thing, I mean, those have to be attractive for us. Um, and we're seeing, you know, it's not in Houston, it's not only the interest rates that are hurting properties and the taxes, but it's also the insurance costs because we're in the, the hurricane area. So our windstorm deductibles have gone and costs have just gone through the roof. And so between debt service, taxes, and insurance, if you got into deals last year or even two years ago, and you didn't have, you didn't underwrite those correctly or had good numbers for those, I mean, that's, that's 40% of your expenses right there. I mean, you're, if not more, you're really hurting. 
Uh, it's actually yeah. it's a bit more than that. So it's um, and it's not like things are going up by ten percent, fifteen percent. It's like insurance rates are doubling. Like you know, debt service costs are are going from twenty thousand to eighty thousand because they're having to escrow for for new caps yeah. uh, a year from now. So it's crazy the cash flow changes that have happened over the last year. But if you're looking at deals now, all of that is known. That's known to the broker. That's known to you as the buyer. That's known to the seller. Yeah. A year, year and a half ago, two years ago, when people got into those deals, nobody knew that the numbers were going to change like that. But yeah. now you know, and if the deal still works, then I believe it's, it's time, go time. You know, well, I mean, the insurance thing, you, people knew they were going up because they went up a lot the previous year. And we had been warned already that they were going to go up a lot the following year. Uh, and so, you know, so we've got this multifamily checklist that we use uh, that we give out to past investors who are looking to do deals uh, still. And one of the items is on insurance. You know, a lot of times what we're seeing from other sponsor groups is they'll go in and they just had like a budgetary insurance number, of like 800 bucks a door, which is like a number that is stupid. Like it's not even a realistic number. It was, it hasn't been a real number for years, but they'll still underwrite because that's maybe the insurance costs that the guy they're buying it from had, and he bought it five years ago. Um, so it's really important as a past investor to make sure that the insurance number is an actual quote that they got, not just some budgetary number from some deals they used or, or what have you, but like a broker gave them a quote for that specific property to close within the next month or two. Um, because it's, I mean, no, deals are sense. at $1,400 a unit. You mentioned this checklist. Can you share that with listeners too? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, multifamilychecklist.com is where they can get it. Uh, it's a 20 point checklist that kind of goes through every little thing that they would really want to consider as a passive investor uh, from the actual mathematics on the pro forma to, you know, the sponsor background, their you know, experience, et cetera, to the structure of the deal. So it's intended to be a checklist that they can keep on their desk that as they're looking at deals, they should get, you know, the majority of those bullets checked and, and that would basically uh, not guarantee, but it, it at least lets them know that, hey, this deal is in the fairway, that it's, you know, there's a really good chance of this one working out. It'll definitely weed out a lot of deals for them for sure. Awesome. And they can get that at multifamilychecklist.com. Correct. Okay, cool. Hey, so where do you go from here, man? You've, already, you've been in the space for a long time. You know, what's kind of the stretch goal for you? Yeah, so for us, we're, we've already made the transition to development. Uh, we broke ground on our first deal already. We've got another deal breaking ground uh, first quarter next year. Um, and that's, that's where we see the future of our company. We want you know, 30 to 40% of our portfolio to be new development. From our view, I mean, high level, it's the equivalent of buying at class A prices, sorry, class B prices, but getting class A product because your cost basis is so low. Um, plus, you know, we've done the 70s and the 60s and the 80s vintage products. We know what that's like. That's 
that's it's rough, you know. You got stuff that's breaking down all the time, and we would rather have new product that we built that we know has good steady cash flow, and that we're not constantly having to fix. Plus, you know, in Houston, we're building twenty-five to thirty-five thousand units a year. Um, so every year, you've got more and more new competition that's pushing the old stuff down. So your older property is getting older and older and your renters have more um they have more access to you know greater opportunities to rent so now you're competing with properties that were built in the 90s and the early 2000s because those are now the old properties and so we feel like the old stuff's just going to have a really hard time maintaining their rent growth you know there's this big push for affordability so we're all like you know, every time they build a new property, they're building it to compete with the existing stuff. And so that they're not really building it to increase the rents a whole lot. So that means that basically everybody's having to push their rents down a little bit or get compressed. And so we just would rather be on that upper middle tier of that where we're, you know, we're kind of in the pack. You know, we're not the top, the top end class A, but we're kind of lower end class A, class B market where we feel it's pretty solid. Uh, we're not leading the charge, but we're certainly not at the back of the pack either. Well, if somebody wants to to get to know you better, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Uh, they can also, uh, if they were to go to that multifamily checklist domain, that comes to me as well. That gets them uh, access uh, to, to sign up with us. Uh, and then they can also shoot us an email at invest at triarchrep.com. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, Listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. Until next week, signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.